Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Dodge Woodall, founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. Ever since events across the world came to a grinding halt, I've been bringing people back together, but in a different way. On this week's episode, I'm chatting to martial arts millionaire and Michael Jackson's best friend, Matt Fides. Matt went from a bullied schoolboy to earning £100,000 a month at the age of 18 and going on to travel the world as Michael Jackson's bodyguard. Matt was really open and honest and shared some fascinating insights within Michael Jackson's inner circle. From the mundane to the ridiculous, Matt has spent some incredible moments and years with the King of Pop. We chat about Michael's genius, his struggles with fame, and the truth behind the controversial sex abuse allegations. Trust me, this one is not to be missed. Here he is, the fascinating Mr. Matt Fides. Matt, how you doing, fella? I'm great, Dodge. How are you? Very good, mate. Very good. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to this one. It's a pleasure to be on. Lovely. Well, let's, uh, let's get cracking. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Why did you get into uh, martial arts? I was just a bully boy at school, Dodge, where the uh, this, this class and the child in my class was a lot bigger than me. I was quite small and skinny back then. And he would just do silly things like kick you under the table, steal my milk, yeah. you know, punch me in the playground, say names to me. But when you're like five, six, seven years old, that's quite an impact on your life. And I'd kicking and screaming not wanting to go to school. My parents, my mum used to have to literally drag me to school. I was very good at pretending to be ill back then, you know. But there was a child one day in, um, I don't know, I can't remember who the child was, but he sat next to me in class, in my classroom, and he said he does martial arts. And this, this, and he said, this guy could hurt you. Why don't you come along to a martial arts class so you can defend yourself? So that's what I did. Now, the first class I went to, I didn't really get on with it, Dodge. It was called a martial art called jujitsu. Yeah. And it's one of the better of the martial arts, it has to be said, for self-defense. It's very all-round. But I just didn't like being thrown at stuff. You know, this wasn't my thing, really. But in the class next door, there's a martial art called taekwondo. And I had very long legs and stuff. You know, I'm six foot four now. So it's um, it turned out to be my thing. I, I could already do the splits for some reason. I could already do the kicks to the head and all, all the stuff that people were training years for. And I just took to it. And I had a grandfather too, who was a, a weight, seven times Irish weightlifting champion and picked for the Rome Olympics for the 1960 Olympic Games. And he was quite happy that finally he had 14 children. 14? Yeah, I know. Yeah, Roman Catholic family. Yeah. And um, I think she had friends. My grandma had 21 pregnancies with babies in, in total. But uh, that's the way it works in... Uh, Roman Catholic world and and so I don't mean any difference we've got lots of grandchildren lots of children and none of them had that sporting kind of flair and then I come along no good at school you know my and he saw something in me and even at like eight nine years old he would train me with weights in his top floor of his attic even in his 70s he's still weightlifting still winning the competitions and things and, and really going for it but he had a lot of faith in me um my parents did it obviously because they, my mum was a lawyer, so and every one of those 14 children, her siblings, they've all gone on to be university graduates and done very well for themselves. I've got three brothers too, very clever academically. I was like their black sheep, really, just no good at school. I can't write dodge. I yeah. mean, it's like hieroglyphic. Actually, funny enough, the only reason I came out with that is because your friend, after watching him on Piers Morgan, I thought, you know what? I'm sick of keeping this a secret now. Because yeah. all, all I have to do, Dodge, is sign an autograph or a signature. Yeah. I don't have to write, write letters on that thing. If I go to a hotel, it's embarrassing because I, they actually fill out paperwork. I pass it to my wife yeah. and she understands and no one knows I just squiggle the box. But after watching Harry on uh, Piers Morgan, I thought it's time to come out now about my, my situation. And yeah, fair play to the guy. But Left school with no qualifications at all. The best bit of school for me was 12 years old. I just thought the whole thing was utterly ridiculous. I mean, I'm not trying to say don't work hard at school to anybody who's at school at the moment. If you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, mm. of course you need qualifications. Mm. But everybody, there's not one size fits all. And it was just one particular day, I was about 12 years old in a maths class. 
And back then, obviously, I'm, I'm 41. So back then, we telephone boxes. I don't know how old you are, Dodge, but full of telephone boxes uh, were everywhere. The red ones. Yeah, of course, man. Um, one of the GCSE questions is uh, to be able to get to the next stage of college, university. One of the GCSE questions was, how many different ways can you put 50p into a phone box? And I just thought, this is me. <laughs> What, how's this going to help me be successful when I'm on? Yeah. And I just couldn't put a thing on. Anything I was learning at school that was going to help me do make money. I mean, my mum and, and dad also got to work hard at school, get a good job, make lots of money, and then buy a house, and get married, have a family, and all the rest of it. So I'd be able to retire successfully. But it didn't really appeal to me for some reason. Maybe it's to being bullied at school. I had this hunger and drive to uh, want to succeed in something else. And I just knew... I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just knew teaching martial arts for me, that was the only thing I was good at. Mm. And even at like eight years old, my instructor put me in front of a class and I could take the warm up. Mm. I just love helping people change their lives. That's what it's been about with my career. Uh, and even, even now. So I left school with no qualifications whatsoever. I'm not proud of that. And mm. I don't push out to people. That's the case. Um, I did well in PE, obviously, because I had an interest in sport and physical stuff, but I was more into weight training than martial arts. And after school, straight away into my martial arts training uniform, doing a weight training session. And, and then I worked my career out from there onwards. So at 16 years old, I took a job as a uh, personal trainer while I was studying to be a personal trainer for six months at the college. And where, and where were you, Matt? A place called Swindon in Wiltshire. So one side of my family is academic. The other side is all about getting a trade. Yep. So my father's side, they were tough on me. My grandfather, he just passed away, bless him, he was uh, nearly 97. They all worked for the British Railway, yeah. going back generations, the great, great, great granddad, fathers and so on. So my dad did, my grandfather did and so on. Um, and then when Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of England, shut that down, they didn't want to do themselves. So with me, their education was get a trade, become an electrician, become a plumber. And my granddad took me up into his shed because he was very hands-on and good at making things. And he gave me a big lecture saying, you know, Matthew, we used to call him Matthew. Matthew, you've got to stop thinking you're going to be able to make money kicking your legs around the air. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, get it, you've got to become an electrician or something. And my dad would call it legalized violence. Yeah. They wouldn't support it. But lucky enough, my martial arts instructor saw potential of me. And my parents would give me the money for the lesson. So he would let me train for free. Yeah. He knew I could be his next champion. And, and he did believe I could somehow turn this into a career one day, although it had never been done before in England. No such thing as a martial arts business. And did you, what was your next step then? Your passion was martial arts. Did you think, well, I can make a business out of this? And at what age did you start that? Well, 12 years old. I, 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 oh, yeah, back to that story in the maths class. Um, I've still got it to this day. My mum kept it. Is on, do you know, in, in their school, they probably have iPads now, I'd imagine, in secondary schools and stuff like that. But we had these little exercise books, don't you? Yep. You know, and yep. you go to the back of the book. I went to the back page of the book and I wrote a list of goals. And some of them were a bit embarrassing, like having a six pack and, be able to do the splits on the chairs and all that type of eatical stuff. You look back and think, why did I write that? And then there's some other ones, which is being the most well-known martial arts instructor in the world, being a millionaire by the age of 20, and um, just loads of kind of success goals lead, leading to material things. And I, I just focused on that. So when I went to the gym after school, I was focused on that, that goal sheet in the back of my maths exercise book and focused on training hard. My education back then was thinking, if I could be the best martial artist in the world with the high kicks and splits, I would attract students, yeah. or if I could have the greatest physique, but that's not the case at all. That isn't the case. All people want to know is what can you do for them to change their lives? They're not worried about what you do, yeah. you know? But that was a mindset back then, which took a lot of shifting. Mm. And then um, funny, everyone was against what I was trying to do, but when I did it, then now everybody tries to do what I've done, you know? So, it was just like I say, the lead dog takes all the forms. And uh, it was interesting being the first in an industry in changing that industry. I was the first people to go, let martial arts students pay by what we call now direct debit. Back then it was called standing order. And before then, it was just money, three pounds in a can at the end of the class, yeah. you know, not taking very seriously or professional. So, yeah, my childhood wasn't great. I mean, my parents were against what I was going to do. Only because they didn't know any different. Yeah, That's all. Yeah. Get a yeah, trade. Yeah. Go to university like the rest of us. And, um, but my grandfather, he was different because he saw, you know, this guy, I think some, something special about him. He might be able to make something here out of it. And my martial arts instructor. So, yeah, of course, they, they all became my biggest fans in the end. Mm. Obviously, by the age of like 19, they were like, 
my dad ended up working for me and I used to remind him, remember, we used to say that legalized violence now pays off Love your it. mortgage. <laughs> Love it. And he didn't, he didn't used to say much about it. And my grandfather apologized to me about the chat in the shed. He said, I got it, I got it wrong, Matthew. I'm really sorry. Quality. So, Mate, tell me about how you got into the business then. When did you set up the first business? How old were you and what year was that? Yeah, so we were in 97. Like, um, it was, I, I really didn't want to not fail because you imagine if I failed, I had my bullies watching me, yep. got no qualifications. And, it, and I did try okay at the exams, Dodge, but you, if your handwriting is no good, it's, it's people are going to mark you down anyway. And it was just, I just didn't have any motivation for it at all for my exams. Um, the martial arts side, how that kind of pivoted to it. Initially, I thought I could do this on my own. I can work it out. So I thought I'd be able to do the split, being the greatest example of what a martial arts should represent. That would help me get hundreds of members. So I had an uncle who did believe in me, and he designed me a poster. I was very good at this kick, a flying kick, they call it, flying sidekick. And I had a picture taken me there. It took about 100 takes to get it right because we hadn't got the camera technology now that we had back then. Yeah. It, was, it was awful back then. It was like, now we've got a speed shutter. It's very easy to do. Yeah. And then uh, he did the poster. And I put them everywhere. I knew I had to be quite aggressive to get I put them everywhere. And then the first class was on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. And I turned up all excited and nobody showed up. And then I went back home. Oh, it's gutted thinking everyone's going to be laughing at me. I'm going to have to go back to college and try and work out this writing, how to write and so on. And, um, and then I turned the TV on. Princess Diana had died that night. I was coming in from a nightclub at three o'clock in the morning in Nottingham that night. I remember waking up in the morning. Oh, my God. I didn't, really, I didn't believe it was true. Yeah. yeah. What's ironic about it as well, Dodge, is that that was quite significant for my first part of my career, Princess Diana. And then, of course, in the next part of my career, I'm mixing with the father of her son, or sorry, his son that was dated, Dodi, yeah. was dated, died in the crash. Yeah. Or when I tried to launch my martial arts school, he became part of my inner circle, Mohammed Al-Fayed, donor of Harris. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And so it's quite weird, really, that that incident, I could have at that stage thought it ain't going to work. Yeah. I knew this is the biggest world tragic event ever. No one's going to turn up to anything. It's disrespectful for a start. Yeah. So I rescheduled it for a week later. And then, yeah, I had 100, 100 people, 80 some people there, paying three pound a class. And that was quite cool for me, you know, like, but I just did a few little things. I just, I, I could do everything with them. So I wouldn't ask them to do something that I couldn't do. Um, so I was, I was not at the martial arts instructor, the pop belly with the black belt on. I don't, in my head, that don't work, you know. <laughs> I, I know there's an argument that, well, there's an argument that a coach doesn't have to be as good as his client. Otherwise, like, if you're going to say, like, uh, Chris Eubank's coach is as good as Chris Eubank, yeah. then, you know, there is, yeah. you're a coach, it's a different type of yeah. thing. But for my, it's just my way of thinking about that. It's not necessarily the case. Now, for me personally, it is, I want to always be in shape. And I want my instructors, my team to always Absolutely. be in shape. I want them to represent what their students can become, one day. But um, what happened next was, what do I do next? Well, it came to the summer holidays and the classes just dipped because whenever the sun was out, especially on a Sunday, they didn't come in and I wasn't getting paid. Mm. And then I was looking to see what else I could do. I could live off it. I was, I was making about a thousand pound a month. Mm. Then I had a friend of mine, a martial arts friend who flew in from uh, America and he, he called me up all excited. Well, he paged me back then. We had pages, right? Then I went, then I went to the telephone box, called him and he said, Matt, you got to see what's going on in America. They got multi-millionaires, people with thousands of members. That, and I, for me, it was more about standards then, not the money. So I was like, well, I don't want to compromise my martial arts standards for the money. And he said, no, you don't understand. These guys have got it all worked out. They're like 20 years ahead of us. And yeah. back then, America pretty much was on anything that yeah. the UK was doing. Yeah. So I was working as a lifeguard to supplement my income at £2.75 an hour. <laughs> and then once I saved up enough money, but um, to get a flight, I flew out to an event in San Francisco and it was full of about a thousand martial arts business owners and all of them are multimillionaires, literally. I went for the best one. I went for the guy who I felt yeah. that's who I want to be. Yeah. He liked the fact that this is a 17-year-old kid, saved up enough money off £2.75 hour and £3 a class, you know, asking him all these questions. And he said, listen, I like because that's what Americans are like. If you're successful over here, they want to kill you. Yeah. You know, stab you in the back. Yeah. yeah. Over there, they pay you. I love you. Yeah. Like, that's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Now you 
you mind if I can ask you how you do it? It's a totally different mindset. Yeah. So he said to me, so Matt, how long are you here for? I said, a week. He said, do you think you can afford to stay two weeks? I said, yeah, just about. So I'll follow me around for two weeks, write down notes, take loads of notes, take everything back to England. If it don't work, it don't work. Some of it works, some of it works. Now it turns out most of it worked, like the high fives and all that type of stuff and the hugging, that didn't work, yeah. you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it didn't work. But we, I took loads of notes. I mean, I came back with loads of handouts, leaflets, copy ads, scripts, all sorts. Everything was systemized that they did. I watched his classes, standards were outstanding. And I get back to the UK and I, um, I start implementing things. The first step was to get people off paying per class because the mindset they have in the States is you don't want to wear two hats. Yeah. You don't want to be an educator and then a debt collector at the end. It looks yeah. terrible. Yeah. So they need to go on to monthly payments. In the States, they were called electronic transfers. Mm. In England back then, we didn't have direct debits. We had something called standard orders. Yeah. And no one had done this before. I was the first one to put that standard order in front. And I had to get across to the members. This is the way we're going forward. And it's from £3 a class to £49 a month. Yep. And that gave me financial security. So whether they turned up or not through the summer, they're still paying. And plus they will turn up more because they know they're still paying. And that worked out well. I secured about 100 members there. Then I opened up my first, I wanted my building like that I saw in the state. So I, I got this building in a place called Barnstable in North Devon. About 30,000 people there. Still 17. Going to the landlord. I said to him, listen, I, I want to take your building on. I, I need to knock down all the petitions on the building. It's all office, offices. And I got a dojo. He thought it was crazy. Yeah. He said, listen, <laughs> I can't make any money out of karate. Are you going to make any money out of karate? You know? And I and he it says, plus you're too young to sign a lease. So I came out of there. I got on the phone to my mum. She was a conveyancing lawyer, property lawyer, if people mm. don't know what that means. So she knew this guy because he was an estate agent. She called him up and she said that, uh, is there any way you give my son a chance? Because we've seen what he does. I think he could pull this off. And I think he could afford the rent. Can you give him six months free rent and see what happens? Yeah, the only issue is signing the lease. So I got my girlfriend at the time who was 19 to change her name by Depot to Finesse. It's pretty naughty, ambitious stuff, right? I <laughs> uh, love it. We're still friends now. <laughs> yeah, she changed herself to the name to Finesse. And she got over that hurdle, signed the lease for me against Garantor. He gave us six months free rent. And all I remember back then was on New Year's Eve, just before midnight, it was right on the front of Barnstable, on the square, they call it. There were thousands of people there ready for the fireworks to go off. And everyone was painting, doing what everybody else isn't doing, yeah. working yeah. while they're all drunk, you know, wasting their time as far as I was concerned back then. And uh, and trying to get enough money to be able to decorate this place out. And now all the partitions are locked out. And then we opened up on January, January the 7th in 1998 and by the end of june i had 700 members and my income was about eighty thousand pound a month with a couple of thousand pound a month overhead i i was loving it i was loving it so that was the start of that that was the start of the business model now you've moved on to how many franchises have you got around the country in martial arts so my franchises now over the last year have actually opened them in lockdown so, so we've gone from having 100 1018 in martial arts so 1026 now Wow. So they've opened up a lockdown online, ready to go face to face next month, uh, which is really impressive that they've embraced that. So, yeah, with the, it's the biggest martial arts chain of its kind in the world. I've gone on to do it in other subjects, too, you know, yeah. like uh, first aid and dance and stuff like that. So same same business model, just different subject. What did you what was what was going through your mind? You thought, right, I've got a brilliant business model where I live in Devon. How am I going to expand this? What did you go to do did, straight away? Did you go to someone who knew about franchising or were you just working it off the cuff? I got to five schools and I was making about hundred thousand pound a month at that point. Hundred grand a month. What year was this? Uh, I was 18. So 99. You're joking. 99, 98, 98. How yeah. did you how did you deal with that mentally? You've gone from three, three quid a man all of a sudden 100 g's a month did you go out and buy the cars and the lifestyle and or did you keep yeah. it low-key no i did everything you said i did uh, i did worse than that dodge i had the long permed hair did you <laughs> the baby wheel, baby wheel chest with a six-pack brand new ferrari what was the ferrari I what color 360 red of course <laughs> yeah driving around driving devon around, driving around a farmer's town wondering why everyone hates me <laughs> Now when I look back, I get it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I thought Michael Jackson, all the other stuff came in. Yeah. That's when they really understand who this weirdo is, you know? 
How did you become Michael Jackson's bodyguard? Where did that come from? Did you apply? How, how did that come about? No, I got no formal training in the bodyguard whatsoever. I, I was just his, I was his friend first. So I had these five schools. Yep. And then one of the dads of the two children that attended my main school in Barnstable, he just got the calculator out one day, did some figures and thought, this guy's making a lot of money. Yeah. And it was talking to town. Have you seen this 18-year-old who's got a Ferrari and he's and everyone knew somebody who's trained at Matt Fidesz martial arts around Devon. We were in North Devon, we were everywhere, you know. It was it was like um, not like a fad, but it was like massive news. I remember standing in queue at a takeaway thing, and I could hear people talking about me in the front of the queue about this is how incredible this this. So I got this stuff I'd not seen before. I yeah. turned turned it from a sporting activity to an educational activity. They had homework. They had you know how to tidy their room up, and how they had to submit all that stuff before they go for the next kind of grade. Yeah. They had sit down talks on good manners, goal setting, respect, discipline. So he's talking to town. He's massive, and this this journalist. He came out to me and he and I trusted him and he called Nick Constable. And he said to me, he said, listen, you know, I love what you do for my kids. I've worked out you're making a lot of money. Mm. And I know you were bullied at school. I want the story and a little photo shoot after. Do you mind? No problem, Nick. I said, I did the, did the uh, story. It was no big deal. I just thought about my bully at school. That's what I just told you, really. Yeah, yeah. And what went on? And then he said afterwards, he took some pictures and I said that in my car. And he said, um, do you think, I said to him, do you think this will make the local paper? Like a little North Devon paper, like Farmers Weekly. <laughs> and uh, 10,000 readers probably a week. And that was a big thing back then. Yeah. And I, I wanted to be in a magazine, Martial Arts Illustrated. That was my big dream. So I grew up watching every, read every copy every month. You know, I ended up being on it all the time, front cover. And he said to me, um, I think it'll make the local paper, Matt. There's no doubt about that. And he went out. Two days later, Dodge. My phone was going off the hook. I mean, this is how the power of national newspapers yeah. back then. Yeah. It's not so much stuck in now. Yeah. I was the front page of the Sun, the Mail, the Star, you name it, the Express. It was everywhere. Bully Boy becomes millionaire. And they took a picture of me when I looked very young and vulnerable, six years old, or cute, my school uniform. Yeah. And he sat on me, my sports car, and my story. And then on the back of that, I did all the TV shows, the morning shows, including like Trisha, Esther Ramson, Kilroy. I think it was GMTV back then. Yeah. Uh, Pete Cohen was on, you yeah. know, those type of people. I did lots of TV on the back of it. And then um, out of the blue, Yuri Geller calls, who's most famous in England for bending spoons, yeah. I guess, yeah, around yeah, the yeah. world. He's, he's world famous. He's published 48 books, fills out stadiums. He's world famous more for power of mindset. Yeah. You know, the spoon thing is just the gimmick, like Tony Robbins with the firewall, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Arnold with the army yeah. back and yeah. the accent thing. Yeah. Um, but he's a very successful man, very wise, clever investor. And his bodyguard calls him that Yuri Geller would like to meet you. He's at his home. His home's next to George Clooney's in Sonnen on Thames. Incredible mansion, 20 million pound mansion. And I went there and we became solid mates. And why Yuri wanted to contact me, he wanted to make a video, VHS back then, where he did mind power on how to combat children who've been bullied, bullied at school. And I taught some basic self-defense moves yep. and we're going to give it free to all the schools in England. And then he ended up going on being godfather to my eldest daughter, Madison. What, Yuri um, Geller was? Yeah. Was he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, and Oliver Twist. Do you remember the original? Or actually, Dod you know, Dodgers. 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 Oliver Twist, Mark Lester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael, Michael Jackson introduced me to Mark Lester. So one of my children's got him as a godfather too. They've had a very strange upbringing. Yeah, my children. It was normal to me. But yeah, I didn't know. But his best mate was Michael Jackson. So he calls me up one night. He says, yeah, three o'clock in the morning. Says, come to my house now. You're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And I thought, I live in Devon. It's like a three-hour drive. He says, stop moaning. You've got a Ferrari. Get in the car. I said, how am I going to explain to him my message? You've got to tell him something. You know, yeah, yeah. We had this massive row with my missus. I thought, what the heck? Got in the car. Went to Yuri's. He just said, love you, bye. Put the phone down. He said, I had to go. Got to the car. Drove to Sonnen on Thames, gates opened, his big electric gates. Nothing really suspicious. I saw three big black SUVs outside his house. Yep. Went in his living room, and this frail man stands up, walks up to me, and he bows. He gets, puts his hand up, hi, nice to meet you, Master Finesse. My name's Michael Jackson. He goes, I know who you are, but what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> you know? That was it. We just hit it off. We were good buddies. We stayed up, literally no sleep for two days, and... He loved martial arts. He wanted me to introduce him to Shannon and Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's daughter. Sandy Bruce Lee's daughter died, Brandon. 
but I, I don't know what possible. Um, you just missed out on that. But Shannon and uh, Bruce Lee's ex-wife he wanted to meet as well because Michael, he studies successful people yeah. or people associated to it and he absorbs things from them. And then he'd put it into his dance or his way of thinking. He'd read three or four nonfiction books a week. That's that's how he, he educated himself. And that's how he taught me to educate myself too. So, yeah, he's already a black belt when I met him too. All the Jackson Five are black belts in country. Their dad, Joe Jackson, made sure they did it. But it became impossible for Michael to train anymore. He's too famous. So him and Mark Lester, the Oliver Twist guy, yeah. trained them to secondary black belt in hotel suites around the world and stuff. And... Um, and I had no formal training in the bodyguarding, but when you're the martial arts guy and you're six foot four, you know, and you've got 19 stone or just muscle, then yeah. you end up wanting to protect your vulnerable friend yeah, yeah. who's mobbed everywhere you go. And I didn't want money from him, Dodge. He used to offer me money. I mean, he's quite demanding. What year What year was this? What year was this when you met him? This was 98 as well. Was it? Mental life. It was like a fairy tale book. Wow, you couldn't have written this. Well, you couldn't even tell you. I'll tell you the hardest thing. Right? When I used to come back, we're hanging out with Michael Yuri and Daryl Hannah and all, all, you know, the big name, Britney Spears. I couldn't tell my people of my own age where I've been, yeah. but my family knew because I think I'm mad. Yeah. <laughs> what are you done for the weekend? I've been just, well, we were, I got grabbed to Curry and got David Blaine, grabbed Michael Jackson from his own town, Yuri Geller. We went and sat on the floor <laughs> and Curry, Tika Masala, watching Matrix. <laughs> Ain't going to believe me. And do you know what? I, to, I told some of my friends, and I yeah. honestly thought they're in their thirties that they'd believe me. And at the time, he didn't tell me anything, but he didn't believe me. And I actually invited them to come and meet meet Michael and hang out with us. Yeah. They thought it was a wind up, yeah. and they were like, "Matt, it was the biggest regret ever when we when we saw you walking with the music awards next to him." He, one, one guy said to me, "Then he choked on his cornflakes one yeah. morning yeah. when he saw me." Walking with Michael Jackson, he's like, oh, I've just missed out on the biggest opportunity of my life to hang out with Michael for the whole evening. Amazing, um, amazing. So, what was the yeah. next step then? You met him there. What was the next step? You obviously got on really well. Was it the next step saying he said to me, "I'd like you to be my bodyguard"? No, it just informally happened. Um, after that meeting, there, he he doesn't have a phone, yeah, which is not uncommon for Megastars yeah. because they get harassed silly. Yeah. So, I, I thought, how is this going to end? Because I don't want to be like asking for his number, looking like an idiot, yeah. you know, if he rejects me, because I fear rejection about that. These guys are mega star, you know, billionaire, and little old me from my martial arts school. But he was, he was questioning me so much. But it's like, like I saw my friends say, the billionaires want to interview us. Curious, yeah. Curious. So he was more interested about my career. Because yeah. normally when people get with him, they just ask him about thriller and yeah. his tour, dance. He's sick to death of it. Yeah. So he just quizzed me, so interested in my life, my career, my childhood, who the bully was, how I felt about that. Did that hunger me to be successful at 18 years old and all this type of stuff. We even got my Ferrari and I took him for a ride around, yeah. you know, without bodyguards. He was, he was absolutely cool about Did he come to England at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's here all the time. He had a house in the uh, Cotswolds. I mean, the last 10 years of his life, he was mainly in England. Wow. He was, yeah, he would, he would like, he used to tell me he would like to live here full time, but it was just the media made it very tough for him yeah. to do that. Yeah. Very, we have very aggressive media here. Yeah. Whereas other parts of the world, he'd get worried with it. But no, he wouldn't tour the States because he just didn't feel that they like him. Mm. Whereas Europe, Germany, and so on, they just love him to death. I mean, it was just massive for him. So, how long were you his bodyguard for? For over a period? So went, yeah. So, Always this friend for the final 10 years of his life. Yeah. Things change. And, not, and I said to you before this interview, that there's no questions off limits. So we're not going to dodge, for yeah. one word, <laughs> anything, especially the allegations, which obviously is a very significant part of his of his legacy, which needs to be talked about. People who actually knew him and not people out for money. But um, yeah, so from like 98 through to 2004, I, we had a lot of events on. So we'd go to the Oxford Union where he did a speech. He was best man at Yuri Geller's wedding. We, we did lots of fan events. We did a big fundraiser in Exeter. Uh, we did a, in year 2000, we did a big charity event at Carnegie Hall in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, on Valentine's Day, that went down with the missus. God, dear me. <laughs> where are we doing tonight? Michael, oh, Michael again. Shall I change my name to Michael? Who should say, if I want a necklace, Matt, I'll ask Michael first if it's okay. So okay. Like, that's, that's why she's my ex-wife. Ex-wife, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, we get on really well now and laugh about it, but um, it's intense because he, he's not used to anybody around, you know, since he's five years old, he's just used to people jumping at yeah. jumping at him and he does need attention. We're on holiday. 
I tried to repair my marriage actually, and uh, I took it to Lanzarote. Two days in, he's at New York Airport, Kennedy Airport, saying, uh, "I'm flying to England. I need you." He's on Concorde. He said, "I need you in uh, five hours' time." So I can't, Mike. Uh, I'm trying to sort my marriage out. Well, you really love me. You can't. I've got no one else I can depend on. Who's going to pick me up at the airport at Heathrow Terminal Five? I need you to stay with me for two weeks. I've got all these business meetings. I, went, I, asked, I asked the ex-wife, she went mental. And then luckily, I looked on the computer, we couldn't find a flight. So I called Michael back, So I can't find a flight, so leave it with me. I was like, oh dear me, because I know he can make anything happen, yeah, Michael, yeah. Michael Jackson. Literally, like half an hour, it goes about, right, I sorted it. I got you a flight, they're picking you up from the air, Lanzarote, you go and via Germany, and you'll be in London for this time. So we landed, and I went to the airport, my wife went, my ex-wife went straight back to Barcelona, very unhappy. <laughs> Because uh, uh, a holiday was ditched for Michael, but he was my mate. He was vulnerable. He was soft character. You know, the guy on stage is not the guy you see behind the screen. Yeah. He was very vulnerable. You can't trust anyone. So he would offer me money, but I don't. Want, I don't want to be paid. I think that's why the relationship lasted. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. So the first first five years, four or five years, lots of public stuff. We could only go out at nighttime and things like that. Obviously, um, we'd have to have shops shut for us. Otherwise, there's mayhem. Sometimes we'd try it without, without um, shutting the shop down, uh, but it was nuts. We'd shut down Oxford Street in a few minutes because people say, oh, Michael Jackson's gone in there, waiting for a glimpse, you know. Yeah. But then after the 2004 allegations and then the trial of 2005, things changed. There's no way I could deal with that. Yeah, I'm not a trained bodyguard. Yeah. So he had the Nation of Islam look after him, and they have guns and stuff. You know, He needed proper protection at that point. Yeah. And then things never really returned to normal after. So it, we went to Bahrain, where we saw him there, he was staying with the royal family there, who looked after him after the trials to get strength back up again. That's so, what was the trials? It was in two thousand and two, was it? Two thousand five. Two thousand five, and that was with Gavin Aviso. Was, we all knew who he was. Um, of fourteen counts of child molestation. Um, and well, not a job. It's like intoxicating him and all this type of stuff, trying to kidnap him. It was we knew it was going to happen, Dodge, because the, the, I mean, the, the family would come into Neverland, and it was just. Even Mark Ness has been on TV to say it. Mark was staying there when the family were there. Michael was never there. Yeah. That was a running joke. Michael was never at Neverland. That was his showpiece. You know, that was built for charities. That he, he was more comfortable in the Beverly Hills uh, Wilshire Hotel, where he's got room service down there. He's got extra security. He because from Neverland to the city, he's talking three and a half hour, four hour drive. Yeah. He hates that. What was Neverland like? Did you go there? Yeah, many times. Just like a. It was like, well, a, what did they imagine. have? It was a ranch. There was a zoo there. There was all sorts going on. A train station. What else was there? Yeah, train, it's like Disneyland, ranch, isn't it? Museum, cinema. Yeah. His house was quite humble. Yeah. His house was quite humble. Um, but his bedroom wasn't. This is the point we need to get across because everyone goes on about kids sleeping in his bed and stuff. And boys, it's not boys sleeping in his bed. It's girls, boys you know, adults, everyone. His bed is bigger than the average UK house. Yeah. It's on two floors of two beds for a start. A couple of bathrooms, jacuzzi. It's huge. Yeah. It's his own private space. It's got a fireplace. It's it's like a house. And then they go on about this secret room in there. Yeah, It's not a secret room, Dodge. The guy's a megastar. That room was built before Michael bought the ranch. It was called Sycamore, Sycamore Valley. He bought it off um, when they were filming... Uh, for a, a music video called for a single called Say 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 with Paul McCartney mm. and they filmed there this ranch called Sycamore Ranch and he just felt it so secluded it was perfect for him and that room was a panic room yeah. and it was also a panic room with Michael it's not a secret room yeah secret so much that what happened even even though you're in the middle of nowhere you still get people parachute in yeah. say oh I've done this by mistake in the hope they can meet Michael Jackson so mm. he wasn't never could walk around the ranch on his own he'd have to have people looking at him him with cameras on and stuff, you know. So every now and then the alarm would go off and he would have to run to the panic room until yeah. the head of security at Neverland would say it's safe to come out again. But they immediately want you to breathe into a crazy room, but it wasn't. Did he ever have paranoia? Was there paranoia and fear going on? Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Massive. Even with me. Yeah. Even with me. I mean, everyone around him. And he used to test us. He, he, I remember one time we were, we were in Vegas and we were driving in the car and about three days before I was due to see him in England, I was in the UK, I had a phone call from a national newspaper. I won't mention them because I do work with them now. I don't want to upset them, yeah. get them turn on me. And they offered a million pounds to me if I can get a picture of his one of his children without the mask on. Because we put the mask on, the yeah. kid's face, yeah. and they yeah. go play in the park and 
be able to have a normal life. Um, a million pounds. And I took a note of it to make sure that I raise it with Michael. And the guy was quite forceful on the phone, you know, like, take this million pound, he will never know, he'll never find out, and so on. And I was in the back of Michael's car. We were going to a show in Vegas at the time. And, uh, yeah, he said, Matt, how's things been? I mean, I said, good. I said, oh, good. And, uh, and he said, tell me the news. I said, no. I said, oh, Michael, one, one thing. I had this reporter go call me, just so you're aware, trying – there's a ransom for a picture of it's for his son Prince. Your for Prince of a million pounds, the paparazzi are trying to get. He goes, Oh yeah, I'm well aware of that, Matt. Thanks for telling me. And uh, I said, I just thought to let you know, so you're aware. Yeah, I'm aware. Some other people have told me the same thing. And that was it. I thought, oh, okay. And he turns around and he goes, Thank you. Yeah, tears in his eyes. Thank you so much for being loyal. That was me who called you. Ah. And he did the voice. He put the voice on. He's an incredible actor, you know, as well. And uh, he tricked me. He was trying to see, testing me, see if I was loyal. Brilliant. He was crying because people just aren't loyal to him. Yeah, paranoia was an issue of Michael. The only, it was a friendship where you're so close and then he would, people get in his ear and he'd get pushed out again. Everyone was trying to be his mate and he didn't know who to trust, you know? And it was hard at times to hang on in there with him. Yeah. The only people he would trust was a doctor because he felt they were binded by their duty of confidentiality and of course they could give him medicine and if you get the wrong doctor they give you medicine that makes you addicted to having them in your life yeah so michael was too scared to let them go yeah and that, that was that was that became a real problem unfortunately led to his death yeah so, was there was there any other drugs involved cocaine alcohol anything like that or was that guy was um a massive i mean i never touched an alcoholic drink until i was 27 dodge and that was only because i was divorced and a bit lonely uh, but he was totally against drinking, smoking, cocaine, all, all types of hard drugs. Um, he saw the drugs that doctors gave him. It's just medicine. The doctor gives it to me. It's okay. You know, and no, he was a massive influence on me on that. So whereas other 18-year-olds are going out and, I, you know, trying to get women and, uh, and well, I say get laid on here, can I? Yeah. Get laid on, okay. get laid on by here. women. And, <laughs> yeah, get pissed, get yeah. drunk. Then I, I had... This era, you know, this guy in my ear saying, listen, I, I, when I was performing, I started off in a nightclub. You wouldn't believe what they get up to and how they turn out. And you've got no, no alcohol, Matt, no smoking. You're going to be in my life. No drugs or you're gone. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he was he was a massive impact, especially at that level of success. Oh, I do wonder what would have happened if I did mix with 18, 19, 20-year-olds back then. <laughs> the guy with the Ferrari and, the, yeah. you know, in the perfect shape, as it were, and... And you are that you are you do get that people want to be your friend. Of course they do, especially if your friend's the biggest star of all time. Uh, that is a bit of a magnet there. But no, he came on the level. But one night I was at Neverland, and um, I was staying in another bedroom down the corridor. You got a long corridor then um, to Mike's room. He's he's kept safe. Obviously, he has to have alarms in case people get in the house, so he, he can go to the panic room. They're not alarms for kids to try and get there. They're alarms that people like myself and other security people feared, like other famous friends of mine have got. Oh, he always gets to stick for it. I've got no idea. But um, I came out. I wanted to go for a wee in the middle of the night. And I came out and the guest toilet was locked. So someone was in there, waited. And then uh, the door opened, the toilet flushed, the door opened. And a monkey comes out, puts his fingers up to me like that, <laughs> goes off, strolls down the room to Michael's room. And I was like, what the heck? Fuck. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said to Michael, I said the next day, I said, uh, I got sworn out by your monkey last night. And he's, oh, I'm really sorry about that. He's, he's so rude. And then the little thing came up to me and bit me on my arm <laughs> as well. You know, just, yeah, but they never used to bite monkey. They used to ch throw their poo all over the room. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? What was what was with the white glove and the uh, the plaster on the nose and the white socks? And and did he really like the press? Did he work with the press, or did he want the attention the whole time? Well, you just answered the question, man. Because white, because what he wanted to do is uh, want you to say, "Hey, what's with the white glove? What's with the sticky tape on right. your fingers, Mike? What's with the mask? Right, okay. Why the sunglasses? Why the high pitched voice? You know, why are you white?" Yeah. You're a black man. What's going on here? Yeah. You know, what's, why, why are you wearing show trousers that are too short and you're wearing white socks? You look ridiculous. Yeah. Why the same clothes with the loafers and the fedora? Uh, I think today we would call that personal branding. Yeah. Back then, it was called image. And uh, sadly, 
due to the not technology we, we have around now, which wasn't around in 2009, we passed away, his image or personal brand, he relied on journalists having to put that out there and tell the truth. It, it was the image that's called got him in trouble today. Because he used when we used to walk out and go out to public, he would always remind me and the rest of the team were with him. Remember, I want my life to be the greatest show on earth and the biggest mystery on earth. I don't want people to know if I'm gay or straight. Yeah. You know, and he sometimes he'd put plaster on on his nose. There's one time, Dodge, he came out of his hotel suite. It took ages to get ready. And we had a really important business meeting for um for a, a record deal. And he came out and he plastered his he had all this sticky tape on his nose. And I was a bit concerned about it. Because well, I read the stories about my friend, just like you would, you yeah. know, right? his nose falling off and all this type of stuff. But it didn't look that bad yeah. about makeup on. I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. But when he came out this day in the corridor, just as we're getting the other bodyguards ready, getting a position, getting mics up, our ears on, yeah. Michael saw that I was staring at his nose and I was concerned about it. And he said, Matt, I said, don't worry about my nose. It's not going to fall off. He said, it's just allergy <laughs> tape. If I got allergy tape all over my nose i know i'm guaranteed millions and millions of pounds of front pages tomorrow yeah if i take this off i might not yeah he said that and so it's just to satisfy the fuzzle dazzle that's the exact words to me <laughs> and i was like oh, okay you're a clever dude you know and that was the same with the face mask he, he looked out of harrod hughes the aviator you wondering what's behind the face mask yeah. and I, I fell for it once he put sticky tape on his fingers taking ages i think have you hurt yourself, Mike? Why are you putting sticky tape on your fingers for? He goes, that's why. I want people to ask why. He said, you've got to worry about it, Matt, when people stop talking about you. Yeah. I have to keep them talking about me to stay in the media. And it's in a circle. I mean, it was so powerful. They're like multi-billionaires, biggest stars in the world. And if they if they put a front wrong, they'll be out. Um, very sheltered life. There was very few friends. I mean, I could name them on one hand. Normal friends like me, Mike Lester, who don't work for him. Who don't have that exchange of money, you know, who would tell him the truth at times, which he didn't like to hear. McCauley Colkin was a good good friend of his, you know, who uh, it was it was just normal to us. He wasn't Michael the superstar. It was only when I saw him on stage for the first time with Dodge, I thought, who the hell's that? Yeah. Where did that when he got he came off stage and I said to him, Where did that come from? Because yeah. I don't know, from above. I've got no idea. Yeah. Wow. Animal. We've got a microphone in his hand, they're doing that Billy Jean and yeah, yeah, yeah. was rocking on my legs. Do you know those shaking machines in the gym? Yeah. Stand yeah. It's like when, when Billie Jean kicked in, yeah. it was a job to stand on Amazing. on the side of the stage behind the curtain. And then and the beat, is like, it's like, uh, how do I explain it? Where he don't hear it like the audience does. Mm. It's like behind, so he has to judge it right to get the moves right. And it was just phenomenal. Just he was phenomenal, wasn't he? I've just seen hysteria everywhere he goes, every hotel, every concert. This hysteria was wild. Did you ever get the fear that someone was going to send death threats or try to kill him or do something crazy? It was a day go past, never a death threat. That was a daily occurrence. We would worry about it at times, and he he would pivot me from being centre stage. So when I started having children, he was, he was a very caring person. As soon as I started having children... He wanted me to take more of a backseat and he put some of no kids up in front because yeah. he didn't want my, obviously, my kids not to have a father. Yeah. He found that was so important. You know, if I sometimes we get a scrum and it go on for about an hour to try and get on a train, there's some video footage on YouTube with people typing Matt for this Michael Jackson. You'll see there's some footage of a fan has took and we're trying to catch a train at Paddington. Yeah. It took us about an hour and I'm up against the rails of the train and, um, and, it, and I, he, I was worried for him, you know, and I go, oh, I wasn't going to leave him. He was hanging on to me like, heck, you know, trying to, and we got got inside, we got inside the cubicle, we shut it. He's pouring with sweat. And I said, Michael, are you okay? He said, sure, I'm okay. I've had this since I'm five years old. Yeah, it doesn't know don't any different, does he? I don't know any different. Yeah, that's exactly what he said to me. Did Michael like men or women? Yeah, like women. I, I, I say, we were always told by Mike, the, the, do you know what it is, right? When it, back in the old days, it's not just Michael, This you could talk about, Many stars I could name off mm. who um, who had to follow this system. You're taught by a record company never to get a girlfriend, never to marry, yeah. and never to, never to tell them if you're gay or straight because you'll lose half your fan base. Yeah. And that worried Michael because he's the most ambitious, successful man I ever met in my life. So that's what he got embedded with at five or six years old. Always, and when when a member of the Jacks, the first member of the Jacks Five, got married, it caused a lot of heat amongst the family and record company. And even Michael was very angry about one of the brothers getting married. Another one got married. Another one got married. 
and he was crying and he was upset that the Jacksons would lose their their fan base. So that's where he was brought up. Now, towards the end of his life, he was coming around to the idea that the world would perceive perceiving him as the mystery thing has gone too far. And it's time to open the doors up to let him know, everybody know that he likes women. And the women involved, you know, I say women, I mean, he's not like sleeping around with everything, but he had a long-term particular woman in his life. And then he had- What was, what was he her got, name? One, one, one girl published a book called Shauna. Yeah. And um, it's called Michael and Me. But do you know what the strange thing is? The, the media know all this, Dodge. Yeah. Do you know when the documentary came out and they were trying to get hold of me, Martin Lester, yeah. and Muhammad Al-Fayed, Yuri Geller, wanting our view on it. And we'll say to him, we've had enough of this now. Yeah. Michael will want us to, to talk about his sex life, but this has become a joke because he's not here to defend himself. He's dead 10 years. So we said to him, right, ring up Shauna, ring up Joanna, you know, in, in, um, in uh, France. Uh, speak to them. We've even published books about, about it. Michael Jackson stayed having to sort, sort, you know, going go after sort out a lawsuit because it's the truth yeah. of the matter. And the bodyguards tour even towards the very end in 2009. I've talked about it as well on Entertainment Tonight. But the problem is, the, journal, the, the editor of that particular tabloid, a massive worldwide one, said to me, Yeah, we know all this, Matt, and we know about her, and we know it's true, but we can't publish that because it goes against the narrative of Michael Jackson. Yeah. I think, you know, just forget it, mate. Just forget it. Yeah. I'm just not going to talk to you then because I'll just put the phone down on it, which is ridiculous. How many kids weird. did he have? Three children. Three children. Did you ever think it was weird that he had children sleeping in his bed that weren't his kids? Um, yeah. yeah. I don't think it's weird. You've got to know Michael, I think, to understand yeah. it. Okay. It's real hard unless you know Michael. And and the thing is with sleeping in his bed, it wasn't so much sleeping in his bed. It's his bedroom that they talk about. Right. And... Uh, you know, Macaulay Culkin and Kieran Culkin, they would tell you they would watch movies together and they just fall asleep in this gigantic bed. But again, like, you could almost say it's like sleeping in a two-story house, basically, with lots of bathrooms and its own fireplace and its own thing. But yeah, I mean, after the first set of allegations in 1993, he wanted to go to court and fight that. And, and all this thing out there, too, that he paid the boy off. He did not pay the boy off, Dodge. That wasn't Michael's decision. Is that Jordan he, Chandler? Jordan Chandler, yeah. yeah. He, he didn't want to pay him off. He wanted to go to court and fight it. But back then, how it went was, is you could have a civil trial first, money, basically. Yeah. And then you have a criminal one after. Yeah. And they sued for money first. Now, what parent would do that? If someone abuses your kid, right, you're going to want him in freaking jail yeah. killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the way it works. Yeah. So they sued him for 20 odd million dollars. And Michael was angry that he wanted he wanted the criminal trial first. Mm. So he tried to plead the lawyers, no, I want the criminal one first. How can this be right? They changed the law now. Second one, they couldn't do that. They had to go to the criminal first, then civil after. They lost the, the criminal one. So he wanted to fight the civil one. And he said, I don't care, I'll fight the civil one. And, and I'll win that, and then I'll fight the other one. Now, unfortunately, he was right in the middle of a world tour called Dangerous. Yeah, And there's a lot of money on it you're talking like three 747 jets hundreds of staff hotels books so 20 million compared to the hundreds of million yeah. is not a comparison now he's also fully insured in every possible way for if he dies or every eventuality even stuff like this so in the end it wasn't michael's decision mm. they this insurance company said no we'll, we're going to pay the money sorry mr jackson you need to get back on tour yeah. 20 million is nothing to us on the back of this it's a commercial decision it's take years to settle you'll be that much older we, we can't cancel all these stadiums you need to get back out there yeah. and get on so get this behind you yeah and that what was your thoughts on that martin bashir documentary when that come out what what were you thinking straight away well, i spoke to yuri again the other, the other day about this um obviously now things have come out of the pan about princess diana yeah you know about Princess Diana, how martin convinced princess diana so so there was three people who had put a proposal forward to to, uh, to Yuri Geller, and I heard about it as well. And, and they tried to get to Michael via me. It was Louis Farouk, documentary maker for BBC. So David Frost, who Michael had met before after Yuri Geller's wedding and got on very well with, and Martin Bashir. Now, myself, Yuri, and all the everyone else wanted Michael to go with Sir David Frost because he just makes quality documentaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael met him before we we know Yuri Geller and him had a long relationship. We knew him very well. 
Mike Bashir, we just thought it was not a name on the list. I know he's famous for interviewing Princess Diana and clearing up her image, but that was it. So we told Michael, this is your three options. He made no bones about it. I want Mike Bashir. I want a Diana guy because Michael Jackson and Princess Diana were such close friends yeah. that he wanted he wanted that. And then Martin got out this note, which is quite famous now, basically saying that, a uh, handwritten note from Princess Diana saying, you changed my life. Um, you know, thank you for so much for what you did. Right, okay. Image. That was it for Michael. There was no talks with David Frost. Louis Ferrer had no chance. Yeah. <laughs> although, although he, he blessed him, he, he went and tried to do it. He did a documentary anyway, tried to get to Michael, put like notes underneath our door <laughs> with smiley faces, please, Michael. And he made a documentary, went out on the BBC, it was really hilarious. And he actually interviewed Yuri at the end and he said, uh, that you wish you picked me now, you know. But an initial pitch from Martin Bashir to Michael, it was uh, focus on the music, your dance, clearing up the myths. We're not going to feature your children. Yeah. We're not going to talk about the nonsense because that's why he, need, he needed something out there. Yeah. Clear up your love life. Well, yeah. it was a complete opposite dodge. Yeah. So me me and Yuri got together to watch it at his house. Michael went to Miami and was waiting for Martin Bashir to turn up because he had proof control as far as he was concerned. Yeah. Uh, with VHS copy, to sit down, say, yeah, I'm happy that might be sure, go, go and air it. He didn't turn up. And then all hell broke loose. The phone calls were happening. We couldn't get hold of Martin. We tried everything wow. to get hold of Mike Bashir. He wouldn't return on our calls. Michael started panicking. Then preview copies were landing at news desks. Oh, no. and, and then, go, then news bulletins were coming out. That it's going to be controversial. Michael's in a hell of a state. And we watched it. Was, we watched it. It was terrible. Yeah. As far as we were concerned, we called Michael at the end of it. He knew by then. He'd had phone calls hammering him. He was crying. And he asked me and a few other people to give statements to his lawyer, Michelle Boots. And for some kind of legal complication, it couldn't stop being aired. So it went out on the States. And that was it. Like the next time we saw Mike Bashir, he was at the trial giving evidence for Michael. And he actually, he actually said after Michael died, he never witnessed anything inappropriate and he never thought Michael was a child molester. So, that, so do you think that had, do you think this whole pressure and all the stress and everything had an effect of those following years, the 2006, 7, 8, and obviously the world tour, this is it tour. We all saw him and he looked very, very frail. Did you know something was, something was really up then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He came to London to announce the, to announce the concerts and he, uh, I had a phone call from one of the team saying, can you please come? They used to call him Mr. Jackson. We didn't publicly call him Mr. Jackson. So could you please come and um, spend some time with Mr. Jackson? He's he's not in a good way. And he's due on, on stage at O2 Arena soon to announce uh, his comeback, his shows. And he's nervous. And he's, he's basically, I'll tell you, Dodge now, because it's out in the public domain. He's been to court anyway. He was he was drunk on whiskey. Yeah. So um, I, I, I rushed to his hotel, his Lanesborough Hotel, and one of the concert promoters greeted me at the door, yeah. and he was quite rude, and he said, swore at me, he said, you need to effing sort your friend out. And I heard Mark Lester arrive by that point as well, Oliver Twist guy, and I said, which friend are you talking about? And he said, the effing super famous one. Yeah. And I go in the room, and Mike was, you know, seriously drunk on whiskey and we're I saw Mike was trying to put water down his neck, hydrate him, get him ready. And I said to him, what's wrong, man? He said, I'm just nervous that the love of the public are gone that I won't sell any shows. And or someone want to shoot me or something. I said, don't be ridiculous, Mike. You'll be fine. And yeah, he went there and he by the time he got back, he sold out 10 shows. Yeah. 3,000. And they uh, they asked him, do you mind if we put another 40 on? Then he sold them out within like yeah. five minutes. Apparently, there's enough demand to sell like 100 shows, yeah. I understand. And he was crying. But he couldn't believe the love of the public. Then I had to get home and run my business. I had young kids by that point as well. And um, I, I got home. And then, luckily for me, Mark Lester and, Mo and Michael went to watch Oliver Twist on the afternoon, Thursday afternoon, the day before he was flying up. Mark calls me. It's ironic they go to Oliver Twist because Mark's the original Oliver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massive yeah. hysteria. Yeah, they yeah. couldn't really enjoy it. They did their best. So Mark calls me. He said, listen, we're not doing nothing tonight. Michael wants to get fish and chips, which is his favourite <laughs> meal. Um, come and join us, you know. Ah, oh, it's a long drive, Mark. You know, can I just wait till Michael's here in a few months for the tour? Then we got him for three months. Because what was going to happen? I was going to move in with my kids. Mark was going to move in with his kids and him. And we were well, going you, were gonna, were you and your kids and Mark, uh, we're all going to move in together in, with Michael. 
Yeah, it's, it's sorry, because he, he wasn't. He didn't want to live in a hotel. Then we stuck in a hotel with the yeah. kids. He wanted, so we had a big. That was part of the deal with the, the uh, concert promoter. Yeah. He had a big mansion in the country. Yeah. Um. So and we were planning to get a to get to the concert each night to keep him safe. We're going to go down the Thames on a boat. Yeah. And then hop off and then do it that way rather than go through London. And I'm not told anyone this. Uh, how how it's all planned out. Yeah. And he got as far, he picked all the furniture and everything. It was all ready to go. And the reason was because the concert was every, every day. And we knew Michael found it hard to sleep after he came off stage in yeah. front of thousands of people. Because he was buzzing. He was buzzing, yeah. yeah. Um, so we knew, me and Mark, could probably get him to sleep and keep the doctor at bay. Yeah. yeah because he always wanted the doctor in because he felt like his body was a machine. Yeah. And if that's not working, or if he got ill, he had someone there to call upon. You can't just take Michael Jackson to a regular hospital at A&E. Don't work out. Yeah. We have done, but it don't work out very well. It was very interesting. Try, trying to convince the doctor who it is for a start. Yeah. The back of the car is quite difficult. But yeah, um, he, I knew he couldn't do the shows. I mean, it was just no way. I mean, the guy, when I, when I gave him a hug that night, so we had fish and chips that night, uh, a bit of a chat about the concert. He raises concerns about it. He's worried about being shot on stage. Yeah. And I said, don't be silly, I'll be there for you. Look how much the public love you. Yeah. And he turned yeah. to Mark. Bear in mind, Mark said, Godfather of the kids. He's grown up with the kids. Yeah. He said to Mark, anything happens to me, please look after my children. And um, yeah, I gave him a hug before he left to get back to Devon. And he was just a bag of bones. I'm honest yeah. with you. I remember seeing. I'm like, Michael, you've got to put some weight on yeah. this. You're doing 50 shows. We need, to, we need to talk about this and get you on a diet and get you training. And we hooked him up with Louis Farino. Do you know who Louis Yeah, 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 yeah. The bodybuilder, the old Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't go very well. Michael turned up twice, and Louis used to say to us, uh, I can't get him doing the weights. He sits on the bench press, but he talks. I think he just wants a friend. You know? <laughs> I just can't get him doing the weights. He's not eating enough, man. Yeah. He can't, he's not eating enough. And uh, that was the goal, trying to put a bit of muscle and weight on him to build him up for this thing. But yeah, we, we were hearing all the time. He's not turning up for rehearsal. And then he called me on the Tuesday night. He was terrified. He was not himself. I mean, I said, I actually asked him then. He wanted to speak to two of my old two older daughters. He spoke to Madison. He spoke to Lola. They still remember that conversation to this day. Yeah. But I said, well, Mike, what's wrong? You know, and he asked for his Joe De- Jackson. He doesn't call him dad, but he asked for Joe. Uh, for me, when he asked for Joe, it's not quite unusual because they have a bit of an up-down relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I knew something was wrong. And I said, Michael, why are you speaking so fast? What's wrong? He said, oh, I've just come down uh, from... Uh, from rehearsal, I took a tablet called Ephedrine. Don't mm. worry, my daughter gave it to me. It just helps me perform at my max. It's normal. Bodybuilders taking stuff dodgy. It is no big yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Austin, I'm sure yeah, you've heard of it. Yeah. Dancing is very popular, but it does have a weight lift, a weight uh, loss effect, yeah. and it kills your appetite too. So it's, it's kind of doesn't help his um, situation. But his doctor gave it to him. But he, his speech wasn't great. Yeah. Um, and he said, look, you know, Joe Jackson is the only person that can sort this shit out. That's mm. what he said. I said, what's going on? I said, can you do 50 shows, Mike? He said, well, I'm going to have to. I have to do it, don't I? Wow. I've got no choice. I've got no money. I need to build a, I need a home for my children. By then, Leverland had already been lost. Yeah. We repossessed. He owned 10% stake in it. And he had big assets, Mike, huge in yeah. music catalogs and things, billionaire in assets. But the cash was just, yeah. he just couldn't put his hand on it. Didn't know where it's gone. Um, so he had to go through the show. So he wanted to speak to Mark Lester. So I gave Mark's number and I knew where his dad was, Joe. He was in Vegas and he called his dad. He left a long voicemail. His dad didn't pick up, sadly. His dad only got the voicemail after Michael had passed away. No way. And then um, he went on Piers Morgan and told him how he got his voicemail and how he, he regretted because he said he would have turned up a shotgun yeah. outside the house until they let him in. But we all tried to get to Mike, but he asked us to come over. He said, well, we, I need you and Mark. But we both got young kids back there. Plus, Mark, Mark was a single dad. And it was, it was just not possible. We didn't think he was going to die. Yeah. We just thought he was going to cancel the show. He's done that many times before. And, uh, yeah, next thing we know, uh, Michael got into a coma or had got a heart attack. Can you comment on that? Mm-hmm. We just thought it was a publicity stunt. Yeah. We didn't be taking it seriously yeah. until then we, Mark Lester called me. And I knew if he called me, because he had a bit more access to Michael than I did. Yeah. He, he used to ring the nanny of the kids and he called and I saw his phone his name flash up on the phone he said where are you and I said I said sit down Matt he said listen it's not yet public but Michael's died oh. yeah and I, I just spoke to the nanny she screams she's crying and stuff and he's died okay so just be, be careful now what you who you speak to it wasn't what was happening no one was willing to go first yeah 
until the coron coroner came out and said they all knew it. They all heard the rumor they died, but they didn't want to say first, just in case it was wrong. They got sued by Michael. So in the end, the LA Times printed it, and then it went from coma on the TV to dead about three hours later. Oh wow! Do you think? Do you think Conrad Murray killed Michael Jackson, the doctor? Well, he definitely killed him in as much as um, administered the drug. I spoke to Conrad when he came out of jail. He, he wanted to have a conversation with me, and. Um, he actually gave an interview with the Sun newspaper about this too. He said that the only people, Michael in his last days were asking for Matt Finesse and Mark Lester in his life. So I knew he had that closeness to him because he wouldn't know that. He yeah. was talking to me and Mark on a regular basis. And they had an exclusive with him and he printed that. So and I read that and I felt a bit guilty that I didn't go and see Michael. But he had he was nothing more than a family doctor, Dodge. I can't name the names because they will sue me, but there's a couple of other doctors out there who should have gone to jail, who were the real culprits. Wow. Conrad was the family doctor who was introduced to Michael by another bodyguard because the children had the flu at yeah. the time, and they became good friends. He was a very respected cardiologist. He had four medical practices in Las Vegas, and he gave them all up for the lifetime opportunity of touring the world, yeah. seeing the world, and, um, you know, and enjoying himself. He didn't know what he was getting himself into, with Michael. He didn't know that the medication that the other doctors had been prescribing and he'd already given up everything by that point. So his job was trying to work out what's going on. Plus Michael was seeing another doctor in the daytime and a comrade in the evening yeah. and the, the, the other two were communicating yeah. which didn't know of each other. Yeah. And in fact he was cheating. Michael was, was being treated by for insomnia by Comrade Murray when in fact he should be in, um, treated for something called uh, drug withdrawal because he was taking Demerol yeah. um, which is like in England, they call it pethidine, where they give to it's from the morphine family. Yeah, yeah. Michael was having procedures to get done ready for this is it yeah. in the daytime. But he was telling the doctor Conrad that he was going to rehearsals. So had he known that, I think Dr. Conrad Murray would, would have stopped that treatment and got him the appropriate treatment. So he pleaded this case to me and he said, uh, I want to come on national TV in England. I want, I want to tell, and I want to tell you and Mark Lester exactly what happened the last final days and stuff. But, yeah, it's one of those things that I wasn't there. It was just those two together. I never really know. You know, oh. it's just like I could never really overrule a doctor. We we pushed them away at, at times. We cut them out. It's quite easy in America because they in America you have to have a license for each state. And there's one particular doctor who almost killed Michael back in two thousand I think two thousand and two or three. Yeah, two thousand and two. Um, and Michael nearly died then. Um, and we managed to get rid of that doctor by state because he administered a drug in the state that he wasn't licensed to do so. So we managed to, to threaten him and say, you either get out of Michael's life and now we don't hear from you again. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go to the authorities and you'll lose your, your medical license. And he was gone. We never heard from that guy again. But it's people like that who should be held accountable, yeah. who've got away with it, you know. So, wow. But Conrad, was he the guy that killed him? Yeah, I guess he was. He? he administered that final dose. He would say... Michael woke up because the dose was so low and Michael pushed it, panic, pushed it in because he, he couldn't sleep all night. He was due back on stage at 12 o'clock midday for rehearsals. It was 10 a.m. Yeah. So he gave in. And, and I don't know. I mean, the, I really, it's, it's a hard one. He got found guilty of manslaughter and served two years in prison and came out. Yeah. But either way, his life's ruined. I mean, he can't be a doctor again. He yeah. can't. Imagine the Michael Jackson fans are so loyal. Yeah. I think, Call any security to be able to go out, yeah. you know. So and he's in his late sixties now. But yeah, it's just tragic, absolutely tragic. Absolutely, absolutely. And how's it been for you personally, being with the biggest rock star, biggest pop star in the world on the planet, and having all these A-listers all around you? Have they stuck with you? Have you still in contact with them, or did everyone just drop off a cliff from there? Well, in two thousand nine, when he died, that night I lost a lot of friends. Dodge. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> it's funny, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the A-listers have stayed in contact with me. The ones that are real true to him, yeah. you know. And uh, absolutely. But that night, it's true to say that a lot of people that were in my life, including family members, suddenly were less interested in me because my best mate, who's the megastar, has passed away. Yeah. And I, But even, even then, there's another side to that too. Even now, people want to associate myself to me because I knew it. Yeah, of course. Well, and it does, I'm not going to lie to you. It does open doors. Of course yeah. it does. Yeah. It also shuts doors as well. Yeah. In some cases, you know, people are very curious about about Michael and, and what was he like and and how did he 
if it wasn't for him, would I have become the multi-millionaire success, building this big empire that I've done, my property empire and stuff, and be able to have this incredible education on franchising? Um, don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Can I answer that question? He introduced me to franchise, he taught me all he knew, and then I teach people how to do that now. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think the hardest part, before he died, it was Matt Finesse, the martial arts businessman. You know, or, you know, business genius or property guru. Yeah. After he died, it was Matt Finesse, Michael Jackson's former bodyguard. Yeah. And anybody, any media write about me now always put that first. Yeah. And I said to my media company, my PR company, oh, what situation is this? Can, 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 they, can they not write about Michael for once? Yeah. So, sorry, you're in his shadow forever. Yeah. You know, you, you just need to learn to live with it. Matt, I have now. Matt, do you know what I love about this? I've taken from this whole thing is that you and Michael's one of Michael's best mates. And I can hear it coming through your voice, mate. And it's 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 fascinating story. And I really thank you for coming on the show. It means a lot. And um, you're a good man, Matt. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Good man. Cheers, See you Matt. Later. Thanks for listening to The Eventful Entrepreneur. Join the conversation today. Review and subscribe for free on iTunes now.